feeling a, a good portion of my thunder in your opening session this evening, and it's so good to be with you. I trust that this cane is only temporary. According to the doctors and the surgeons, uh, I will not be using it in another two or three weeks. Hopefully, that is the case. And I said to my doctor up in Elkin, North Carolina, who is equivalent to our wonderful Dr. Tim, they wanted to meet with me today and yes, uh, yesterday and have surgery. And I said, no, I can't do that. I've got to go to this conference. And I said, doctor, you've got to help me get through this conference. It's been planned, programmed, a lot of people are showing up, and I cannot cancel out on the last minute. He said, okay, I'll dope you up and get you through. So if any of my speech becomes slurred tonight, should I start speaking in tongues or anything like that, the elders know to come and get me and haul me down. <laughs> no, it's not that bad, but... Um, so good to be back with you and so honored and privileged once again to open up God's holy word and speak to you with the end in mind that the triune God would be glorified, that you would be built up and edified, and that should someone be here outside of Christ, that like Zacchaeus of old, even today salvation would come to your house. May the Lord be pleased to do that. If you would, I want to open up tonight if, and turn, read from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, to give you the, as an introduction, as a setting for what is to come. Though we'll be looking, I don't know that we'll be looking at a lot of passages. I will be giving you a lot of references that if you're taking notes, you can look up and follow through for your own, and thus grow thereby. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, down through verse 5, hear the word of the living God. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory. And I want you to notice the covenants. This is very specific, and we'll be looking at this tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow afternoon. But the covenants the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this, the reading of his word, in our searching and studying it tonight. Let's once again pray. Great God, our Father, before whose eyes nothing is hid, all are open and naked before thee. We bless you tonight that you have brought this conference together. We bless you for the people that are here, those with hungry hearts who want to know your word, and thus in knowing your word, know you better. We ask that you will Smile upon us and grant us your divine benediction that you will enrich our souls. And most of all, the longing of our heart is the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Grant that so in the eyes of your saints and your people tonight for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ our Lord in whose matchless name I pray. Amen. Covenant theology, simply stated, is the view of God and redemption that interprets the Bible by way of covenants. It's not something that is esoteric. It's not something that is outdated. 
It is not something that is not relevant. It is so vitally important, not only to the glory and praise of God, but it is vitally important to the Christian life of the individual, to the nature of the church. It is there to give you as a Christian, as God's elect, redeeming child, redeemed, believing child of God, strength and stability, spiritual fortitude to live in this world of darkness and the darkness is encroaching upon us even more. It is there also to help us to understand the gospel that we might proclaim it, we might witness and share it to this fallen world. And it's also there to keep us from all of these things that are going on that so disturb people. Let me give you a personal illustration here. I have some family members that are in Christ, and I have one cousin whom I love dearly. And she is so nervous about what's going on. And for the past six weeks, she has been texting, calling, sending emails. You need to get ready. I know that you don't understand all this. But the rapture is going to take place sometime between September 21st and September 30th. You need to get ready. You need to tell your neighbors. And I said, Edna, dear one, those are the safest days if I were an unbeliever those would be the safest days for me to live. You, you and those teachers that you listen to are showing themselves or thinking themselves to be smarter than Jesus who said no man knows the day nor the hour. Many people are so perplexed. There's a system that I will deal with briefly next tomorrow afternoon called dispensationalism and the seven dispensations which have no footsteps in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. As Corey has already said in Stealing My Thunder, the Bible knows of only one Savior. In both the Old and New Testaments, there is only one way of salvation. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God alone be the glory. And I want to say this, and I'll get really controversial tomorrow afternoon. If anyone was saved in the Old Testament by works, or if the people in the Old Testament were saved by works, you know how many people were saved? Zero. No one... No one has ever been saved by works of any kind, ritual, traditional, or whatever. And this is what covenant theology is all about. The triune God is a covenant God. He is covenant, covenantal in all of his actions, all of his dealings, and this is the way that he deals savingly with humanity from the creation of Adam all the way until the end of the age. The, both the Hebrew word berith and the Greek word diatheke are used extensively throughout the whole Bible and can be found in the most key and crucial passages. The, word, the words either berith or diatheke, and we're going to look at one in the New Testament this, after, this evening, are used over 313 times in its simple form or in its compound forms which shows you the significance of it. And I could tell you some other things about words such as love and wrath. Matter of fact, the word love is only found like 311 times in all the Bible, but the word wrath is found over 600. Wrath and its cognates are found over 630 times in the entire Bible. So when we find these words here, there's cause for us to Take heed to what is being said. Now, when we come to these sections, there's much discussion about the distinction of a covenant. And as Corey has brought out, that our confessions or our, our catechisms say that a divine covenant denotes a solemn arrangement between two parties or persons. And that 
to one sense is good, but in another sense it is woefully deficient. And we will look at that even this evening slightly and tomorrow afternoon in more depth. But before I begin, I want to deal with two things. First of all, I want to say something about the use of theological terms, phrases, and words. In other words, allow me to say a few words about words. From an exegetical study of the Bible, either Old or New Testament, the, New Test the early Christians were forced to do theology. And they wrestled with the divine revelation of Holy Scripture and saw that it was so packed that it needed, for instance, to be unpacked. That some of the biblical teachings could not be entirely and satisfactorily explained in a few words. An excellent example is found in the early church in 325 when there was the Council of Nicaea and the whole debate and the whole discussion over the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And there were words, Greek words, that may not mean anything to you, but to the early church fathers, they were a matter of life and death. Words such as homoousia or homoousia, the only difference between them is the little Greek letter Yoda, which is our I. The Arians, the heretics of that day, accused the Orthodox of using extra-biblical words. Trinity is not found in the Bible. Deity is not found in the Bible. Homoousia is not such found in the Bible. And on and on and on. And they tried to dispel the arguments of the Orthodox. The Orthodox responded. And you can see it so clearly in these early church creeds that they produced. They responded, the word of God is so packed that it takes human words to unpack the meaning. An illustration for you. I could give you many, but let me just use one primarily. The book of Ezekiel. You remember in Ezekiel 1 and 2 when Ezekiel has this vision and he sees wheels within wheels within wheels and he uses words such as appearance or there was one like unto. What he is saying is that divine revelation and divine truth is so beyond us that we have to use human words to try to explain and express what God is revealing. And facing the accusion, uh, accusation by the her heretical Arians of using non-biblical terms to explain their beliefs about Jesus, the early church fathers replied that God's truth is at times so compressed that we will not understand it unless we unpack it. And we have those same folks among us today. They would often call themselves biblicists. And they will say, well, if, it's not, if it ain't in the Bible, I ain't going to believe it. Well, let me just remind you of a few things that we often use that are not found in the Bible, but we are very much in belief of and hold to tenaciously. Tell me, will anyone tell me where the expression Great Commission is found in the Bible? Can anyone tell me? It is not found, the, the word, the phrase, Great Commission is not found in the Bible. But yet when you hear it, what comes to your mind? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I can give you a whole list of Words here, words such as canon or inerrancy. We fought that battle, haven't we? Are the scriptures inerrant or are they not? Do they contain errors or do they not? And hence we use the word inerrancy. But that word is not found in the Bible. Let me just give you a whole list of words here that are not found in the Bible. 
words such as inerrancy, epistemology, hermeneutics, which is the science and art of interpreting the Bible, homiletics, the art of producing sermons from the Bible, and I could go on monotheism, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, aseity, incomprehensibility, even the word providence that we use so much and so often is not found in the Bible. The word theodicy, Christology, passability or impassibility, hypostatic union, peccability and impeccability, even the word ascension, referring to Christ leaving the world and going to the Father's right hand. The word ascension is not found in the Bible. Evolution, anthropology, the word fall. We talk about the fall of Adam and Eve. The word fall is not found in the Bible. And soteriology, spiritual union, monergism, even the word depravity. These words are not found in the Bible. Dichotomy, trichotomy, legalism, antinomianism, pneumatology, excommunication, eschatology, and for my dear premillennial friends, even the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It's a Latin word, raptire, but it's not found in the Bible. And even the word millennium is not found in the Bible, to list but a few. But these are excellent non-biblical terms to help us better communicate the truths and beliefs that God's word teaches and his people are to espouse. You have an economy and a word. When I say trinity, you understand exactly what I mean. Instead of every time saying, there is only one God who has made himself known in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I can use an economy of words and simply say the Trinity, and you know exactly what I'm saying. And our early church fathers knew this, and they followed this example. And applying that, I want to come to the concept of covenant theology. By the way, do you know that the word Bible is not even found in the Bible? So we use theological words all the time in order to help us to understand what the Word of God is teaching. The second thing I want us to see before we look into the covenant of redemption, and by the way, the terms covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, these terms are not found in the Bible, but I trust and hope by the grace of God to show you that the teachings are there so clearly, so plainly, and what we do, we use these terms to express, to confess, even to share with others divine and biblical truth. The second thing I want us to see is that just as there is no single plot of land on the earth that yields every variety of flowering tree or fruit, there is no one single chapter in the Bible in which every truth of God is collectively revealed. Now what we need to do and understand is that God's truths are scattered throughout the sacred pages of Scripture, and these truths will not yield themselves to slothful, somnolent, lazy, sleepy people. We want this little, I remember growing up and there was sitting on our table a little plastic loaf of bread, and some of you know what I'm talking about, and there was a verse of the day. And for most, that was simply the only family devotion they had and one of the family members would reach over and pick up a verse, pick out a little sheet or a little tab, and it had the verse of the day. Well, you're not going to understand the word of God that way. You're going to have to look at it as we have heard earlier. 
We've got to look at it as a whole, as a unity. And God reveals his truth progressively through the scriptures. Nowhere will you find a lump or a clump that explains all in total the truth of God in any place. The exhortation of the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, by the way, and if you believe otherwise, you are entitled to be wrong just as anyone else is. Uh, I don't mean to get off on that, but if you disagree with me, you disagree with the early church fathers all the way from Clement and Origen, Chrysostom, Augustine, all the way through to the reformers. This question wasn't even a question until higher critical thinking came into our country via the German liberalism that came about. But the writer of Hebrews says, you have need of milk and not solid food. We don't need to be babes. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And I hear so many people back up there in the mountains where I live. Well, I don't know the Bible much, but... And I'm thinking, if you don't know the Bible much, keep your mouth shut. Pre ignorance is not a premium. Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And if you want to understand the rich treasures of God's word, it takes digging, it takes studying, it takes prayerful meditation. And as we go through the scriptures, little by little, and I'm old enough in life, I can say this now, I can't tell you how many times I've read through the Holy Scriptures. And yet every morning when I sit down and I begin my reading, I have yet, yet not been enlightened by what I read. This is, the Bible is not a reader's digest. You can read it one time and it's, you've got it. It's something that you need to read and study every day. And as you do so, God enlightens our minds to his divine revelation. And we know more and more and more about him. So, this is therefore important. Every believer, whether a Christian just sitting in the pew, going in a workaday world, carrying out the vocation to which you've been called whether you're a student, whether you're a theologian, whether you're a pastor, must painstakingly study the entire word of God in its historical context to get its correct intent and full meaning. And thus, you cannot carefully read the Holy Scriptures without coming across certain passages that raise the question, what's going on here? Who is speaking what is being said? Why is this being said? And if you are a serious Christian, as you're reading the word of God, you will come to passages and you need to pause. Just don't think that you fulfilled your duty and flipped your quarter to God in the air because you read a passage, a chapter, section of scripture in the morning. Search the scriptures, Jesus said. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. You need to study carefully and diligently. Now I want you to turn to two passages of scripture with me this evening. We'll be looking at others. What time did you say we close? At 10.30 tonight? Okay. Turn with me first of all to Psalm 2. I love this psalm. Uh, I love all the word of God, but this psalm has a special place in my mind and in my soul. Psalm 2, let's look at verse 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8. And listen here. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Key word here, interesting word here. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
Now, looking at this passage, several more questions arise. Who is speaking here? Who is the Lord that said unto me? And who is speaking of whom? And who is speaking to whom? You need to ask those questions as you're reading. When did this conversation take place? And the Lord said unto me, I will tell you of the decree. What decree is he referring to and speaking about here? Who is speaking to whom? What is being said? Well, the answers are clear. David is the earthly person speaking, but writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he unveils a divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son that could have obviously taken place at one period. I start to say time, but at that particular time, time as we know it did not exist. In the eternal council of redemption. I would submit to you first and foremost that covenant theology is Trinitarian. And if you do not believe in the Trinity, no matter how much you tell me you love Jesus, I will tell you, you are not saved. Here in the eternal council of redemption, God the Father, before the beginning as we know the beginning, before time as we know time. God is the creator of time, but he is not governed by time. He is above time, and he works in and through time, but time does not control God. And before there was ever a beginning, here, the Holy Trinity, and this just stirs my soul. Father, Son, as we sing in the doxology, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost set. And the Lord said to my Lord, I will, and here David is speaking, referring to Christ who was to come, I will declare the decree. Well, when was this decree made? You need to ask yourself these questions as you're looking through this passage. What is the decree? The decree is that that which the Father made with the Son to resurrect him from the dead and enthrone the Son to a status of the Redeemer and Mediator. Then the Father speaks out promises to the Son. He promises him a great heritage of souls from among all the nations even until the ends of the earth. But here we're brought in to see a little light of a holy conversation between the Father and the Son. The next passage I'd have you to turn to is Isaiah 42. Turn with me, please. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord, or thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. And isn't it interesting? And just recently I was, I was, it just brought to my mind how many times and this is kind of off topic, but how many times is it referred to in Scripture that God made the heavens and the earth? And that's why creationism is so intensely attacked today because if God didn't make the heavens and the earth, you are the captain of your soul and the master of your fate and accountable to no one. And that's why those who would hold to day-age theory or evolution, they're ashamed before the scientific world instead of declaring the naked and unadulterated truth that in the space of six days and six nights, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I love these passages in Isaiah where God speaks so clearly. 
is there any other God beside me? It's like God is standing up on his throne and looking over the vast expanse of his universe, and he says, I know not any. Or as we'd say up in the mountains, there ain't none. I am the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, I am God, and beside me there is none other. Bury that deep in your soul and keep it there. Refresh your mind with it time and time again. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you. I'll explain who this you is. I have given you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Beginning in Isaiah 41, down through Isaiah 53, there are four primary, what is called the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, or Isaiah 40, God says, the nations are as but a drop in the bucket to me. And then in Isaiah 41, he summons all the nations, metaphorically speaking, and he introduces to them one that is simply called his servant. It's as if he steps out of the shadow, and the father says, I want to introduce you to my son, the servant. And here is what he is going to do. And you can see this more fully developed in these servant songs of Isaiah. But again, although the servant is introduced to Isaiah in the prophet's time period, this conversation with and promise to the Lord's servant could have only taken place in the eternal council of, uh, councils of eternity past, and it speaks of future redemption. These two passages speak of nothing more than what David states in Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret, and by the way, the word secret there is the word berith. The secret, the covenant of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Well, again... This conference will not exhaustively cover everything. I'm gonna, only going to hit the highlights. And I hope that you will be a diligent servant and a diligent student and search these things out. But let's turn now to the New Testament. What is to be made of explicit passages in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, where Jesus issues claims about the many, or as many. John 17, 2. I love, well, I love all the scriptures, but I love this. As you, Jesus is speaking, referring to the Father, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now when did the father give the many, or as many, to the son? Let's just look at so many, or some, several passages. All that the father gives unto me, John 6, 37, shall come unto me, and the one who comes unto me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 39 of John chapter 6, chapter 10, verse 28, as many, or the many. John chapter 17, I pray not for the world, but for those that you have given unto me. Well, the question must be asked, when did the Father give them to the Son? When did this take place? Oh, Corey hit that. That's my medicine button. No, no. 
Paul, Paul gives the obvious answer in Ephesians 1.4. According as we were chosen in him, when? When you came down to the altar and accepted Jesus in your heart? When you made your prayer of decision, when you made, you, you accepted the Lord? Oh no, my friend. According as he has chosen you in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated you unto the adoption of children. I love the book of Job. From Job chapter 1 to Job chapter 37, everybody's talking. Everybody's running their mouth. Even Job defending himself. He knows he's a sinner saved by grace, but what his false friends are accusing him of is simply not true. Everybody's talking. Everybody's running their mouth. Everyone has diarrhea of the mouth. And then in chapter 38, suddenly, the Lord begins to speak. And when God begins to speak, everybody shuts up. Job. Interesting, he addresses Job and not all these false friends around him. Job, where were you when I put Orion in its place in Pelaides? Where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created Behemoth and these creatures of the land? Where were you? And he takes Job. I remember one of my professors said that what he does is take Job through a tour of the entire universe. And everybody, no one is speaking of him and says, oh, but, but God, what about this or what about that? Everybody's mouth is stopped. And then finally in Job chapter 42, Job says, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eyes, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes and dust and ashes. You are right. I am so wrong. Before the foundation of the world, God, in holy counsel, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said and planned out everything. I've said this so many times, and those of you from Heritage should remember this. You need to delete the word luck from your vocabulary. There is no such thing. Not even a leaf falling in remote China happens by accident. It happens according to divine decree and plan. Jesus uttered in Luke chapter 22 Verse 22, for the Son of Man goes forth as it has been determined. When was it determined? That's the question you need to ask. When was it determined? We're going to look at the obvious answer in just a few minutes. Another passage, Christ on his way going forth to the cross he talks to his apostles. A few verses later, he says unto them, and here is one of the problems, and I am not a Hebrew scholar. I am not a Greek scholar, but I know enough to make my way around. And Jesus says to his apostles, and all the English translations here, in my humble opinion, don't get it right. He says, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me a kingdom. Now what is interesting about this word, the old King James, I think, uses the word bequeath. The new King James uses the word uh, appoint. The New American Standard uses the word give. The NIV uses the word give. The ESV, I think, uses the word give. 
But actually, none of the English translations actually translate the word that is used here. And the word is a deponent verb, and it's diathikamai. From the word diathike, which is covenant. And if you translated it literally, Jesus says, And I covenant unto you a kingdom as my father has covenanted unto me a kingdom. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem from the virgin's womb by accident. It was by divine appointment. He did not live for 12 years in obscurity in Nazareth. And by the way, the word Nazareth comes from the, the Hebrew word Nazar, which means far It was a word that the Jews used for redneck. If you were from Nazareth, you're a redneck. A hillbilly, by the way, I'm a hillbilly and proud of it. And I'll tell you why sometime if you ask me. This didn't happen by accident. I go as it was determined of me. And as... And I covenant unto you a kingdom as my father has covenanted unto me a kingdom. Jesus would afterwards say that he had finished, accomplished, tetelestai. What a beautiful word. I have finished. It is finished. Finished what? The work that was given to him to do before the foundation of the world. What was the work given to him? When was the work given to him? What was the kingdom covenanted or appointed or assigned unto him? How are these words understood if they're not interpreted as having taken place and determined in the eternal council or the internal covenant of redemption? Our Dutch friends often call it the council or a covenant of peace. The apostles, the apostles would give further enlightenment to this and other parts of the New Testament scripture. Everything that Jesus did was covenanted unto him. When? Before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 3.11, and you can start just noting these verses. You don't have to turn with me. Paul unfolds the eternal purpose which God purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal takes us all the way back to eternity past, before time as we know it had begun, before there was a beginning as we know the beginning. Peter, with the same comprehension of God's eternal purpose, declares that believers were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. In that covenant of redemption, the Son was foreordained. We're going to look at four things about this covenant in closing tonight. But I'm laying the foundation for you to see this. Peter understood this as... And he perceived the Redeemer as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 3, 8. It was not that the Savior was actually slain before the foundation of the world, but in the intent and decree of God, it was determined and it was covenanted. It was established that the lamb would be slain in human history. And as one has said, and that is why his work was summed up by Paul in these terms, He was obedient unto death, Philippians 2.8. Obedient to what? He was obedient to the covenant stipulation that was put upon him before the foundation of the world. Some modern Baptists and evangelicals have commonly objected to covenant theology in general and to the covenant of redemption in particular, maintaining its basis and terms are found nowhere in Scripture. And an excellent answer to that is an objection given by A.W. Pink, a mid-20th century Baptist. And let me just say something about Pink. I get tired of these people who say, well, you know, he didn't have his Ph.D. 
he wasn't of the academy. And so they just shuffle his stuff off to the side as if it is of no importance or no value or worth. I'd rather read Pink a hundred times any day than some of this nonsense that's coming out by many of the modern writers. And Pink makes this observation. Let it be pointed out that there is no one verse in the Bible which expressly affirms that there are three divine persons in the Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, co-glorious. Nevertheless, by carefully comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that that such is the case. In like manner, there is no verse in the Bible which categorically states that the Father entered into a formal agreement with the Son, that on his executing a certain work, he would receive a certain reward. Nevertheless, a careful study of different passages receive, uh, obliges us to arrive at this conclusion. Holy Scripture does not yield up its treasures to the indolent. And as long as the individual preacher or believer is willing to let Dr. Schofield or Mr. Pink do his studying for him, he must not expect to make much progress in divine things. The covenant of redemption is, just, is not just a term devised by ivory tower theologians to erect and bolster a man-made system, but rather it is a biblical teaching springing from a supernatural and scriptural basis. The particulars of it are is that God planned to save sinners by grace alone. Even the fall did not take God by surprise. And if God had not allowed it, it would not have taken place. And I remember one of my professors, old Dr. E.F. Rabine, used to say this. Before there was ever air for birds to fly in, before there was ever land for animals to walk on, before there was ever a sea in which sea creatures could swim, God already had a savior. God already had a savior. The fall didn't take God by surprise, as we'll see tomorrow morning, God willing, with the covenant of works. First Thessalonians verse four, or chapter one, verse four. It's interesting that Paul, this is one of his first epistles. It's arguable whether Galatians or 1 Thessalonians was the first epistle. Makes no difference. But here Paul is writing to a young group of believers, a young church where he had only spent three weeks and possibly two days in the city of Thessalonica, and yet a church was founded by the preaching of the gospel. He had to flee the city because they were threatening his life. He sends back messengers to see how these young Christians are doing and they bring back a report that is so glowing and Paul begins his epistle to first epistle to the church at Thessalonica and he says he gives thanks unto God the Father for their work of faith and so on and so forth. And then in verse 4, he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. I've had pastors to say, you know, you shouldn't talk about things like that. Election, predestination, they just shouldn't ever be dealt with. And I said, why? I mean, within the first four verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wanted these young Christians to know that the reason that they were saved is because God chose them. And if you're ashamed of election, you're ashamed of the truth of God's word. And you're ashamed of Christ, who came to give his life as a ransom for, and there's a definite article there, the many. The plan was developed in eternal counsel and decree of God before time began. Romans 
2.30. We everybody knows but misquotes Romans 8.28. Actually, to those who love God, all things work together for good. Even to them who are the called. They leave out that definite article again. Even to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow. And I'm going to deal with this again just in a minute. We think that foreknowledge has to do with God knowing what we would do. No, my friends, you're putting the cart before the horse. Yes, it, it is true that God foreknows what we will do. But that's only because he foreknows what he will do. Foreknowledge does not deal primarily first and foremost with us. It deals first and foremost with God. He knows what he is going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of the night. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. But God knows what he's going to do tonight, tomorrow, and for the rest of eternity. That's why at the end of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, as James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, who was not an apostle but such a godly and holy man, that they chose him to be the elder in chief, so to speak, if I might use that term, of the Jerusalem church, and he stands up and settles this whole issue. What are we going to do with these Gentiles coming in and out? Should we have them circumcised, et cetera, et cetera, keep the law of Moses, the ceremonial law of Moses, et cetera? And James says, known unto God are all of his works from the creation of the world. Foreknowledge does not deal primarily and exclusively with what God knows we're going to do. It deals primarily, almost exclusively, with what he knows he is going to do. Whom he foreknew, he did also what? Predestinate. Whom he predestinated, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he all. He also glorified. All of this was in the mind and the purpose and the foreknowledge of God before the foundation of the world of what he was going to do with sinners such as you and I. Ephesians 1.4, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God, for the gospel did not come in word only, etc. 1 Timothy 1.9, 1 Peter 1.2. So let me close with the four things with regard to the covenant of redemption. First of all, there are two primary parties involved in this covenant. The Father speaks of work given unto the Son, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Though the Spirit is not excluded, He is there. And as Sinclair Ferguson said, the Holy Spirit is the silent member of the Trinity. He's not out front. His work is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the Son, the second party, is to execute the prominent role in this covenant pact and its outworkings. Jesus speaks of promises made to him before coming into the world and repeatedly refers to the commission which he received from the Father. And the next time you're reading through the Gospel of John, read, underline, I've done this in my Bible. How many times Jesus said, as the Father has sent me. As the Father has sent me. Where was it determined that he would come? I mean, there's so many places there. Just to give you a few, and I'm not going to give them all to you because I don't want you to become lazy. John 5.30, John 5.43, John 6.37, John 6.40, John 17.2, John 17.12. Though the primary parties on the onset are the Father and the Son, the Spirit acts on behalf of the Father and the Son in the powerful carrying out of the covenant of redemption. And I'll deal more with that later. Secondly, two requirements appear in the covenant of redemption. The first one, the father required the son 
to assume human nature with its present infirmities, though without sin. And that's one of the reasons why I love the definition of Chalcedon. It is one of the most beautiful Christological statements outside of Scripture you'll find. Christ came very God of very God, but he came very man of very man with a reasonable mind and a reasonable soul and a human body that was not capable of sin. Christ, secondly in this matter, these two requirements, was to place himself under the law to pay the penalty for sin by his death and merit eternal life and justification for those whom the Father had chosen. John 10, 11, Galatians 1, 4, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Romans 4, 25, on and on. So, Christ, and that's why the active obedience of Christ is so glorious. God being thrice holy requires perfection in the, to enter into heaven. How many of us tonight have reached perfection? Would you raise your hand? How many of you kept the law of God perfectly today? How many of you have you kept perfectly in the last hour? None of us. But the Lord Jesus came in human, took upon him that which he was not before. He, being the eternal son of the eternal God, came and was enfleshed, incarnated, to live a life of perfect obedience to God's holy law so that not one jot or one tittle would be broken. And he went to the cross and for us and in our stead, paid the price for every one of our transgressions and merited for us eternal life. Worthy is the Lamb, they sing in, that, in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb. The third aspect of the covenant of redemption is, and in, in this covenant, the Father made several promises to the Son he would anoint him and assist the Son with the Holy Spirit. And for you folks at Heritage, I feel badly about one thing that I never preached to you. I never preached uh, a series of sermons on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in which I have one sermon on the work of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And I can go on and on. Who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up to God. The Spirit of God. And here you see the intra, not enter, but intra-Trinitarian workings. The Father raised him from the dead. The Son raised himself from the dead. No man takes my life. I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it up again. And the Spirit of God, Paul says in Romans 8, raised him from the dead. And it was through the Spirit that he ascended into the heavens. Actually, through the heavens, into the heaven of heavens. And the Father promised that he would anoint and assist the Son with the Holy Spirit. That's why when John baptizing in the River Jordan, not knowing who Messiah was, but knowing that whoever he was, he would see the Spirit descending upon him. And he looks from the waters of Jordan to the banks of the river, and he sees his first cousin. Corey's already brought it out. Corey's already stole my thunder on that. He sees his first cousin six months older or younger than him, and he sees the Spirit of God coming down upon him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And Jesus comes into the river and demands that John baptize him. And as such, the Spirit of God came upon him. The heavens opened, and we hear a voice from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was part of the covenant promise the Father made to the Son that I will anoint you, 
I will assist you as you carry out the work of redemption for the people that I have given to you. And so, and there's so many verses. Also, he would support the son in his work. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. Luke 22, 43. He would deliver the son from the power of death and place him at his right hand again in the throne of glory. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And the father would send the Holy Spirit to form and finish the work that Christ accomplished on the cross in the building of his church. There's only one thing in all the Holy Scriptures that we're told that Jesus is doing. He is building his church. And the Spirit of God is carrying out the accomplished work of Christ on the cross in calling poor, wretched, hell-deserving sinners such as you and I to see the darkness and the blackness and the misery of our sins and to see that the only hope is one who was crucified on Golgotha's brow 2,000 years ago, submitted himself to the power and authority of death for three days and three nights, and on that great getting up morning, my friends, he speaks and the stone rolls back. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor from the dark, death, dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. Hallelujah. He arose. So here's the Spirit of God working. And then finally, the fourth thing in the covenant of redemption, there are two rewards the Father father promised to Christ the Son in this great eternal covenant that would assure his success. First of all, he assured him he would draw and preserve sinners unto eternal glory. John 6, 37, 39, 40, 44, 45. And secondly, he would grant to Christ a numerous seed from every tribe, language, people, and nation gathered from the ends of the earth. Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 22, 7, Psalm 72, 17, Psalm 110, verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Hebrews 13, 20, Revelation 5, 9. What are they singing? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and redeemed us unto God from every nation, from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. Worthy is the Lamb. So we see what is seen that all that I've just said from the above mentioned passages is that salvation is not an afterthought but a carefully devised and well-planned blueprint of the triune God to save poor, miserable, undeserving sinners a long time before there was ever a beginning as we know it. And one day, one day the Lord Jesus, according to Hebrews 2, will stand before the Father and he will say this, Here are my Father, and all those that you have given me, I have lost none. There will be no empty mansions in glory. There will be no empty seats at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is not continuing to write a new name in in glory because, as we'll see, The Lamb's Book of Life was written when? Speak up, I know you're dozing off. Before the foundation of the world. No wonder Wesley could write, my name is written on his hands. And the Spurgeon would say, where's your Arminianism now, Mr. Wesley? (laughs) He's loved you with an everlasting love. And the day or the night or whatever the hour it was that you came to repentance and faith in Christ, God the Father didn't sit upon his throne in heaven and scratch his head and say, 
hey, Gabriel, who is that? Michael, do you know where this person came from? Who is this? No. Metaphorically speaking, we can hear the father say, welcome home, my son. Welcome home, my daughter. I've been waiting for you a long, long time. He knows you. He loves you. And he will carry you through to glory. All glory to the Lamb. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as you alone only know, there was much more that could be said than what was said. I've only touched, scratched the hem of the garment of your divine truth, the self-revelation that you have given to us of yourself in Holy Scripture. I pray tonight that you will seal your divine truth to each mind and heart, cause us to be diligent searchers of the scriptures, for in them we think we have eternal life, but they are they which speak of the Lord Jesus. Bless, give us a good safe travel home, give us a good night's rest, and give us a wonderful refreshing day tomorrow. To the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, eternal forevermore. Amen.